Geography is the study of places and relationships between people and their environments. Often we think of maps, but maps are static. GIS gets interesting when you realize that we're studying and visualizing data flowing through these locations and communities. In this episode, you'll meet Silas Toms. He's an author of several Python GIS books and the co-host of the Mappist Hour podcast. Are you ready to dive into GIS with Python? This is Talk Python to Me, episode 295, recorded October 27th, 2020. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python, the language, the libraries, the ecosystem, and the personalities. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy, and keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm, and follow the show on Twitter via at talkpython. This episode is brought to you by Linode and TalkPython Training. Please check out the offers during their segments. It really helps support the show. At TalkPython, we run a bunch of web apps and web APIs. These power the training courses as well as the mobile apps on iOS and Android. If I had to build these from scratch again today, there's no doubt which framework I would use. It's FastAPI. To me, FastAPI is the embodiment of modern Python and modern APIs. You have beautiful usage of type annotations. You have model binding and validation with Pydantic. And you have first-class async and await support. If you're building or rebuilding a web app, you owe it to yourself to check out our newest course. Modern APIs with Fast API over at TalkPython Training. This is the first course in a series we're building on Fast API, and for just $39, it'll take you from interested to production with Fast API. To learn more and get started today, just visit talkpython.fm/fastapi or click the link in your podcast player show notes. Silas, welcome to TalkPython to me. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Michael. Yeah, it's great to have you. Since it's a, a GIS episode, where are you calling in from? Where are you located? I'm in San Francisco, where I've lived uh, for the last 13 years now, since I moved down for grad school. Oh, right on. I grew up in Northern California, kind of in the middle of the nowhere, but I always really enjoyed this city, and I've come to really love it. Yeah, it's a, a neat place. If you were to jump on I-5, the north-south major highway for people who don't know, and go north for a very long time to the <laughs> next big city you hit, you'd get to Portland, where I am, so... <laughs> Right on. You know, I think Ashland's a big city. <laughs> you know, Ashland is nice to visit. Yeah. But if you could throw a rock across it, it's not a big city. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. You can only have so much Shakespeare in your life. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. We're going to talk about GIS and Python and all those sorts of things, but and a bunch of cool job experiences that you've had, as well as some of the libraries and applications and whatnot. Well, let's start with the beginning. How do you get into programming in Python? It was kind of a circuitous route. I mean, my parents, uh, of all things, were organic farmers up in the middle of nowhere when I was born in northern Humboldt County. And my dad had always kind of had an interest in technology. He wasn't averse or anything. So when I was about eight, he got a little computer that was programmable that had a basic program on it. And so he used that to like keep track of sales at our fruit stand. Oh, right. And he taught me how to, <laughs> yeah, it was cute and probably 800 lines or something, which seemed like amazing to me because he would, he taught me how to do a little bit and I would do little silly things when I was seven years old or whatever. You know, what's interesting about code is like, it's not always about how big or how complex it is. It's sometimes it's about what it empowers or the problem that it solves. Like I can think of a couple of libraries and it's like, gosh, this is so nice. This exists. And it's like a hundred lines of code, Yeah, but I just love that it exists, you know? 
Completely. Like we'll get into it, but like Pi Shape is an implementation reading shapefiles for geospatial data to format. And it's relatively simple, compact, and it's beautiful. I love it. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So you had this experience with this basic app that was running the family business? Yeah. Well, there was that. And then in high school around 97, I took an elective in computer programming, also basic, which I didn't like love the other crowd in the room, really. I was always thinking of myself as a little more active. I played sports, but I did like it. I just, I couldn't fully identify with it and being from like a rural kind of macho county, like it just didn't occur to me that that was something I could do. So and if you could see the future, like, yeah, yeah, you know, all the, like, the, <laughs> the cool stuff you can build and like yeah. how sort of tech is changing yeah. perception, right? Who knows? Maybe it would have. Well, uh, maybe if I could just read the newspaper, because at that time it was like the first dot com <laughs> wave. And I just wasn't really in the mindset that that was something I would do with my career. But I went to college, I went to Santa Cruz, and then I was kind of homesick. I finished up back at Humboldt. State University and got really into geography, which is a really interesting quasi science, I guess you'd say, that has a lot of really interesting theories about why the world is, uh, how it's divided up and why it's divided up the way it is, how people sort of present themselves across space, how cultures interact with the physical sciences. And somebody who like spent my whole childhood like reading through encyclopedias, it was just the best combination of learning and interests that I could ever find. So without even realizing it, 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 I had never heard of geography before I really got into college. It was amazing. It was perfect for me. And it had this component that was, I think, a bit too lightly touched on called GIS, Geospatial Information Systems, that I got exposed to. And I thought it was kind of cool, but I wasn't, again, expecting to make computers a part of my professional career at that time. I was really focusing on environmental policy and water policy, especially Humboldt County has a lot more rain than the rest of California, and they've built these giant dam systems to bring it down to the Central Valley. And it seemed like it was there was a huge fish die-offs in 2001, 2002 that were directly attributed to the lack of water. And so I got kind of interested in like, how did they make these decisions to build these dams? Why does this water policy exist? How do they benefit and value agriculture like sort of profit or uh, cotton that wasn't really making a profit in the Central Valley versus salmon, which could be very valuable where I was from. So I got really deep into those weeds and ended up going into grad school in San Francisco State for geography with a focus on resource management. And that was 2007. Nice. And did you end up with like a lot of data? Do you need to process? You're like, all right, I guess I'm going to have to do (laughs) these computers again. (laughs) I just remember like late nights trying to figure out, like just really struggling with the software and doing some interesting. Also, another interest of mine was wine. And I remember trying to do like a temperature map of Humboldt County because a lot of the organic farming families that I'd grown up with had started growing wine at the time. And I wanted to see like, How does it compare temperature-wise to Napa Valley or to other well-known places? And I just hated the manual data entry that I was doing. And I thought, there's got to be a better way. So those feelings and and a couple internships that I got when I got to grad school really led me to um, value programming. And and I felt so stupid with it at first because even though I'd had that experience as a child, it had been a decade since I'd really touched a keyboard that way. And I felt like there's got to be something to this. So I'll just keep hitting my head against the wall. And even though I feel kind of dumb, I know that I can use this. And and it really worked out. Yeah, that's super cool. I think it's really interesting in your story about how you kind of, it like slowly just dragged you in. Eventually <laughs> you're like, 
Fine, fine, you've got me. I, <laughs> I kind of went down the same path as you in some regards in that I didn't really see myself as a developer. I, I kept looking to do other things, chemistry and math and so on. And yeah. And eventually I just like, you know what, actually, I do like this better, but it's easy to forget those early days of like fighting with a syntax. Just, yeah. I remember being so excited about getting a C++ program to compile. A little bit I know. Like, <laughs> it's going to have to run and work correctly. That's the hard part, not the compiling, but these early days, these, yeah. you step over these challenges and then they're kind of in the past, but yeah, everyone goes through them. Well, I remember when I was really trying to learn in 2008, I took a class that was sort of an elective offered through the computer science department. And I got to be really good friends with the guy who was just a master's in engineering student himself. And he really saw that I cared, even though I didn't know anything, basically. And so he spent some time and taught me a bit of Django at that time, which was just coming out. And I remember getting so excited when I was able to have Django use ArcPy, talk to a shapefile get a location out and put it on a browser, just like a little tiny thing. Yeah. I showed my grandmother. I'm like, grandma, I did it. You know? <laughs> she had no That's idea cool. what I was talking about. <laughs> I bet she was really happy to see it though. Like, she must've been psyched. She, she didn't discourage me. She was so excited, but I just remember that moment of just like, I did it. And the wizardry of that, I still don't think I'm over that really. Yeah, no, it's, I never, I haven't gotten over it either. It's amazing. And just that feeling of I built something that could be useful to people and it's out there and they can play with it. And, and then to see them come and use it, it's just amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I started just that same process of like, whatever I could do at work. Cause at this point I had gotten a job as a GIS technician. I was making maps of a uh, park district lands that they were considering adding. And I found it Great to be paid, especially during the recession there. But I was not like loving the work itself. So I found all kinds of ways to use Python to automate, to figure out how to make like a database of all the other maps we had made to just anything that I could think of that was interesting to me. I'm never going to enter a map a second time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Stupid map. So and then somewhere in there, I got a call from a recruiter. I had some friends of friends who were in the program who knew that I did some Python and they recommended me for a job at an environmental consulting firm called ICF. And the recruiter, I remember him saying like, do you really want to work for the government? You know, you're like 27, right? <laughs> thinking, yeah, I suppose you're right. I was so happy to just have a steady job at that point that I wasn't actively looking, but there was some pull to just something different and exciting. And I really benefited because it brought me into the opportunity to work on big environmental projects like the high-speed rail project and figure out how to use Python to automate those because we were right. we were getting engineering outlines in AutoCAD and we had to convert that into GIS formats and then run that against all of the data we had on species range or any kind of protected resource, even like farmland or wetlands or anything like that. And we had to do it week after week after week. And I was kind of, I just remember that first call when I first got hired where I was like, I think I can automate this <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> with that upward tilt in my voice, but, uh -huh. but I could, and I did. And that's awesome. I kind of became a team. And they probably saw you, like you said, as a wizard, they're like, Silas can make it, do it automatically. Do you understand what that means on its own, right? Like not other people. Yeah. And some of the libraries we're going to talk about in GIS are like, hey, I've got this lake and I've got this other thing. Do they intersect or does this line pass through this area? And really interesting stuff that builds on common libraries that people will know like SQL. Well, exactly. You know, the one big one that really got me at that time, because I was running into like licensing issues with the uh, Esri ArcGIS software that we were running, couldn't 
really do some of the higher level analyses I needed to do. So I heard about this thing called PostGIS, which was built on top of, what is it, PostgreSQL, and then a library called PsychoPG2 that allowed me to write spatial SQL and directly talk to a database and do those analyses in code like I had never been able to do before. And it kind of blew my mind. This is around 2010, 11 or something. I just, that's when I realized like, Beyond the world of the software that they had given me, this Esri software, there was this incredible open source software community that, that was providing tools that exactly the ones I needed. And I could tweak them and do so much more and so much faster. Yeah, so interesting. And you don't have to ask for licensing or worry about that or, yeah. or whatever. This portion of Talk Python to Me is sponsored by Linode. Simplify your infrastructure and cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux virtual machines. Develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier. Whether you're developing a personal project or managing large workloads, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions. As listeners of Talk Python to Me, you'll get a $100 free credit. You can find all the details at talkpython.fm slash Linode. Linode has data centers around the world with the same simple and consistent pricing regardless of location. Just choose the data center that's nearest to your users. You'll also receive 24-7, 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs, regardless of your plan size. You can choose shared and dedicated compute instances, or you can use your $100 in credit on S3-compatible object storage, managed Kubernetes clusters, and more. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Visit talkpython.fm slash Linode, or click the link in your show notes, then click that Create Free Account button to get started. All right, before we get off this sort of intro topic, though, really quick, what are you up to these days? You've got a, a pretty interesting job working with a intersection, a lot of these concepts. Well, yeah. So, you know, that sort of like do-gutter mentality has never really gone away. And I've worked on some big enterprise systems for a whole city, let's say, which included creating a GIS for the Super Bowl for Levi Stadium when it was here. I got to go to the Super Bowl and we did every concert and event for two years before that. So I saw Beyonce, you know, I saw uh, <laughs> Taylor Swift or all these people, right? Just because I built a mapping system that used Python to talk to a 911 database to locate calls that were coming from the stadium. And also we figured out how to put an iPhone app in the pocket of the police so that we could see where they were. And that we could keep 70,000 drunk people from beating themselves <laughs> up, you know? <laughs> and so there was that. But then like after that, I felt like I really wanted to just kind of go even more into front-end development and learn more JavaScript. So I ended up joining a team at Neo, which is They've like shut down their U.S. operations, but it's a, a Chinese electric car company that's working on automatic cars and uh, self-driving cars. And that sparked a lot. And that team that I worked with, I did leave and go to Zillow, which I'll get to in a bit. But that team that I worked with, I loved. And that team, uh, one of the main guys, Josh Butler, founded this company, Kinetic Eye, which is, I think, the biggest realization from Neo, from all the work we did, all these smart people we worked with, is that self-driving cars is so hard. And so using computer vision, using machine learning without like a really directed mission is going to be an incredibly hard thing to master for the next decade or so, even if you spend $10 billion on it. Yeah. I honestly can't believe we have self-driving cars. It's, yeah. I always thought of the AI realm being like, oh yeah, we're going to do this Turing test and you're going to have the app chat with somebody over text. Yeah. And then if it seemed real enough, 
your AI is like real. And somehow that always felt so shallow and fake. And then it was somehow kind of stagnated there. And then all of a sudden, cars are driving themselves around at a level of complexity so far beyond that they don't even compare, right? And somehow we couldn't quite get one and we got this other. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, Tesla just rolled out their beta, right, last week or something. Yeah, exactly. It's advancing all the time. I still felt like it was a huge problem and level four, level five self-driving cars, which we were working towards, was going to be a decade off. So this team that split off, we're focused on computer vision in small spaces, in warehouses to see like, How safe are people being? How much risk are people causing with their driving habits or with their work habits? And how can we give business owners the ability to understand how safe the practices are at their work, how much potential risk they have for like a worker's comp or an injury? And the do-gooder in me loves it because like injuries just ripple out throughout a community. If somebody is hurt, then they're out of work for a while, then their family is hurting, then their community is hurting. And we really want to like have this use of computer vision that identifies intelligently risk and safety. And so it's a cool mission and also great technology. Yeah. So if I had a factory and maybe after lunch, people will come back and they weren't putting on their hard hats yeah, or something like that. You would say like, ah, uh, we're missing some hard hats. Something yeah, like that. Yeah. Yeah. Hard hats, vests, masks, social distancing was one we built right away, obviously when COVID hit. Oh yeah. Of course. Yeah. And then forklift speeding, forklift near misses is really cool because we're able to plot it on a map, you know, like brings it back to the map. So all those insane like YouTube videos of like people crashing, mm-hmm. doing stupid <laughs> stuff on like, you know, works just after hours. Like you would know about that kind of stuff. Yes, exactly. (laughs) You know, we're working towards like a real-time notification. I think that that's in our future. But more than anything, it's the the all-the-time risk environment that we want to let people know about. Like, how well are you doing and how safe are your people? Sure. Yeah, that sounds like a great mission. Let's talk broadly about GIS Mm -hmm. for the moment. Just some of the areas which have been used. I mean, we talked a little bit about this with some of the environmental things you talked about. I mean, Mm -hmm. I guess one of the things that most starkly stands out for me, maybe two is one is directions. Like another thing that I'm just blown away by. Yeah. And also probably like a little bit weakened by just as a human is GPS, the ability to ask Google maps or something else, how to get me there. And just, I I'm thinking of the feeling I have when I, for some reason forgot my phone or the battery dies. I'm just like, Oh, I'm done. Yeah. What's going to happen now? My, <laughs> I have no GPS, right? Whereas like I, I grew up without even a cell phone. So it's just such a weird thing, but absolutely GPS, right? Well, 20 years later, it's just become part of our lives. Like uh, I remember yeah. in like 2001, let's say, trying to drive through San Francisco and being so freaked out, driving probably the longest way I could because it was the only route I knew to get safely from one side to the other. And just couldn't imagine, you know, how easy it is today. I went and visited my uncle who had gone to the Naval Academy and he was living in Annapolis in like 2005. And I had some friends in DC and I said, I'd like to go visit them. How do I get down there? And he's like, oh, well, there's GPS in my car. So you can just take my car and it will just tell you how to get there. And I couldn't believe it. It was just the easiest trip I'd ever had door to door in an area I had never visited in my life. It blew my mind. Yeah, it's so amazing. I remember doing some work in Shanghai and I had one of the early iPhones and I was using Google Maps. I'd gotten into the habit of, I'd sort of pick a random orientation. Go, I'm going to go that way for about an hour, walking and exploring. Mm-hmm. And then when I get tired, I'm going to just hit, take me back to my hotel. And I had gotten really far one day and the phone was down to like 10%. And I'm like, oh my God, 
I forgot the name of my hotel and I can't speak Chinese. I can't speak Mandarin. I'm going to be in really big trouble. So I had to just turn it off. I'm like, please turn back on and get me close. You know, like (laughs) that was the most extreme concern of lacking GPS. But yeah, certainly those things are amazing. Another area that I think is really probably interesting and maybe actually has little more personal touch for you is agriculture, right? Like understanding your crops and growing things. And just, you know, you think of sort of the idyllic farmer with just basic tools, right? But there's a lot of IoT and a lot of uh, smarts you can apply to those things now. The marriage of uh, GPS and GIS and and, uh, farm tech is just all over, especially, let's say, the Midwest where they have, you know, one of the first self-driving applications was was tractors, right? Because it's so boring to just be in a tractor for a straight line for a long, long, long time and then turn around, right? So they figured out how to make the thing turn around using a satellite and It's pretty impressive. I've always thought, too, that even like down to the small organic farms that I grew up with, you know, where you're incredibly resource specific, you need to know exactly what went where and keep track of it, you know, for regulations, but also just to know what to grow next and to keep track of your nutrient levels in your soil, that GIS and mapping would be a really great use. I'm not sure how far it's gotten into there because a lot of them are kind of old school hippies who don't, you know, they still use pen and paper as much as possible, but well, it's, maybe if you tell yeah. them it's open source, it's not corporate, they might accept it a little more. <laughs> they might love that, yeah. So, yeah, it's become incredibly important. And, you know, like just watering, uh, monitoring water levels, for instance, uh, like what do they call it? NDVI, which is like the what how you can see how well your crops are watered or thriving based on like uh, the infrared that you can't see from the satellite imagery we can get now. It's just incredible revelation, you know, and, and seeing yeah, that. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. But then, you know, I kind of pulled away from that when I came down to the city and got more into like environmental services, environmental industry. And the two biggest projects I worked on was the high-speed rail, as I mentioned. And then also the PG&E has power lines everywhere. As That's caused some issues because there's branches that have rubbed up on it and fires have started. They have programs that monitor how much trimming they do around all of their lines throughout all of Northern California. And they keep track of it. And then they also have to kind of estimate within all that work how many you know endangered species they stepped on accidentally, that kind of thing. And because it's yeah. uh, something that is expected work, they have to mitigate. So we would uh, use GIS to calculate basically how much PG&E like needed the, to pay. The impact. Yeah, the impact. Yeah. So that was really cool. The uh, species animal equivalent of a carbon tax or carbon offset or something like that, right? Basically. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, it's just kind of how it goes. But the thing is, if you if they don't trim those lines, I mean, mm-hmm. they're in the th- those fires mm-hmm. are horrible this year. And, it, you know, it's not like you could say, well, you should, shouldn't trim them, right? It's going to be worse, right? It's like a necessary evil, basically. Yeah, you have to do it. I don't want to say I, I got disillusioned, but I realized in some ways that the industry is, it's sort of just like insurance. It's it's something, an expected business payment that you have to do to cover the effects of your business, especially for those giant utilities or uh, other large construction projects, which is fine. It maybe dampened my enthusiasm a bit, but really, at that point, I was really getting excited by the technology. It turns out I really like programming. <laughs> <laughs> and I decided to move on to a, a company that was focused on city, plant, like city GIS, like enterprise GIS, being able to integrate, you know, the police with the sewers, with everything. Because when we got there to that city, which is Santa Clara. Basically building the smart city. Smart city. Yeah. You know, they had like 11 different address databases that they were using. Each department had their own and they were all different. So like, imagine the police not knowing when you're at where your address is. Well, it's it's more common than you would think, unfortunately. Right. 
And smart cities really appealed to me. So I spent a couple of years doing that. And that uh, was was amazing work. But I just, again, really liked the programming so much. I, I, I started moving away probably from pure GIS into a lot of like front end stuff. But that kind of gave me an opportunity to get to know web mapping and JavaScript mm-hmm. and all the amazing JavaScript tools that have come out over the last 10 years to enable mapping on the web. Yeah. So you worked at Zillow, for example, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. Zillow is definitely one of those cutting edge companies. I remember being yeah. just blown away when Zillow, when I first experienced Zillow, I'm like, I could see what my neighbors paid for their mm-hmm. house. Yeah. And the value predicted value of it now. And yeah. just like all that sort of neighborhoody stuff. Really interesting. Yeah. Well, when Zillow came out in like 2005, let's say, Esri really dominated the G- GIS space. And, but you start to see these little cracks appear where like mashups, as they called them in the late aughts. That's right. That was the web 2.0. Well, yeah. Mashups. And mashups. Oh, that was all the hype. <laughs> and in, in reality, you know, Zillow is just still a mashup. Uh, it's a map with uh, a data overlay of parcel information and some machine learning predictive algorithms, I'm assuming, that go into the values, the, the, the Zestimates that you see. Yeah, the Zestimates. <laughs> that's right. So uh, <laughs> it was really cool. And what we were focusing on on, or at least what I was brought in to focus on as the geospatial lead there was uh, mapping every single neighborhood in America and Canada to understand like how people defined the space around them. Because again, for me, in some ways, the geography was more important than the code itself per se. It was, yeah. yeah. And it got really cool, but that project was canceled to focus on other big projects. So I got into um, data pipelines and I did uh, actually a lot of Spark work, some PySpark, but also using Scala. I, I did a little bit more Scala, so yeah. I cheated on Python there. That's for a different podcast, though. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, like it was amazing work. And it it is still, though, in some ways, like Web 2.0. And I kind of wanted to really be a part of the future, uh, really be a part of whatever this wave is. Is this 2, 3.0, 4.0, 10.0? I don't, I don't know anymore, 4.0. <laughs> but I think that that's having worked at Neo right before that and seeing what was going on there with the self-driving and the computer vision, which is fascinating stuff. And just my experience with computer vision actually comes from GIS because classification of data, of satellite data is a big part of GIS. There's this division between like vector and raster data and the, the, the raster yeah. data coming out of satellites. You got to look at the pictures out of the satellites and make some sense of it, right? Is that a river? Is that a lake? Is that a car? It's incredible just to be able to make these colors, these cells next to each other and make sense of it. It's incredible. It really is. And it still blows my yeah. mind in some ways. So it was a natural move to go into, you know, computer vision. And what I really realized recently is that it's not that different. We have this video data that we're overlaying all kinds of information about what you're seeing and you're interacting with it. It's a different kind of map is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I want to just dive in that for a second because I think it's so interesting how much these skills that we develop and these things you feel are so specific to some particular area, right? Like GPS mm-hmm. or, or something like that. My experience from going around and doing, I used to do in-person training classes. I remember I was one week working at Edwards Air Force Base. And then I was working at like a hedge fund in, in New York the next week. And I'm just like, these cannot be more different. Like these, <laughs> these groups. And what I realized was I was teaching them basically the same thing. And they both needed it exactly. They both needed a lot, right? And it's like, there's this sort of core of what you need to to be super good at all these ideas. And I suspect in the GIS 
realm, it's kind of similar, like the computer vision, the ML, the data database, you know, geospatial queries and all those kind of things. Like everyone just needs that. And then it's like that little 20% difference that goes on top. That seems like it's the whole difference, but it's just a little bit, right? Totally. Yeah. I guess we both chose wisely in that Python became our focus <laughs> because it's it incorporates all of those things and very yeah. nicely, by the way, I think. Uh, I really do think that, yeah, it's it's not that different. And it is so cool to be able to just get this basic of programming, the basics of programming and and whatever you're passionate about. And you can just take that across fields and feel really successful and useful. Yeah. I, yeah. It's super cool. I totally have seen it happen over and over. And I just want to highlight it because I know there's a lot of people out there listening or knowing that would be really useful, right? Like they they probably feel like they're struggling to just make it in one area, but really that's actually, that's the whole, that's everything, <laughs> almost all of it, right? It's, it's cool. Somebody said one time that what's e- like, it's amazing being a developer, but it's even cooler in some ways being like, let's say a chemistry person who knows how to program, you know, yes. or for me, like environmental water policy, yes. knows how to program. All of a sudden you're so valuable in that office. They can't believe they lived without you. And it's not that different from other types of programming, really. It's just data that you're manipulating. A lot of ETL, right? That's that's kind of uh, yeah, yeah, a lot yeah. of what we do. And that's Absolutely. awesome. It's so fun. I agree. All right. So let's actually next spend a little time talking about some of the libraries and whatnot that might be mm-hmm. worth thinking about that are out there, the types of problems we can solve with them. So you spoke about Shapely already. Maybe mm-hmm. give us a quick rundown on Shapely again. Yeah. There's a, a pro a team, I suppose, but headed by this one programmer. I forget his name right now uh, because it's, I think it's Sean. But anyway, uh, Ru- Shapely and Rustario are pure Python tools for manipulating geospatial data. Shapely is more about once you've read in the data into your code somehow, then you can perform distance analysis or you can say, you know, is this car in this neighborhood? How far has this car traveled? How close was this car to this particular house? All those questions that you might need to ask, or you might, you know, calculate um, demographics across space. Anything that you need to do with polygons, points, and lines, which is the majority of vectored data, you're able to do with Shapely. And it's very useful in that sense. It has a really nice interop between JSON as well. Yes. Super nice, right? If you can store your data in JSON, like it just naturally reads and writes that. Yeah, exactly. There's a format called well-known text as well that it reads. So it's it's very smart in that sense. And Rosterio or Roster.io, I always get that confused, is the roster, the raster, roster version of that. I always say roster, maybe it's raster. (laughs) But the other one I really like that you have here is uh, is GeoAlchemy 2, which is an add-on to SQL Alchemy which is amazing just in itself. Like SQL Maki is so cool to be able to write code for any particular or you know general database and then be able to have the code work is incredible. I really like ORMs. I love ORMs too. And I think that they are, they just make data so much more accessible and remove some of the error, potential error that you might have in working with it, right? Like if I'm going to insert something, I don't forget to add this other part of it, right? This piece of data, or you might, you know, when you load it up, you might forget to, convert some value from a string to an end or who knows, but right. Like the, you build these classes and it just, you do a few simple things and you've got a really legit app working with a database. Yeah. And so that's SQL Alchemy, obviously. Right. And Django has its own version, but if you're not doing Django, basically you're probably using SQL Alchemy, which has been going strong. So Geo Alchemy, what's the story of that? It is specific to PostgreSQL with the PostGIS uh, spatial engine add-on, but it allows you to 
as you're saying, just write a database model that includes geospatial columns. So the columns that store these points, lines, and polygons that we're describing. And you're able to do with that module all of these different buffers or intersections or any other kind of geospatial analysis that you need to do directly with the data that you're storing in your database. Nice. So if anyone's familiar with SQL Alchemy, it's exactly the same. Like you create a declarative base, you create an engine, you do the create tables, like all that stuff that you do, you create a session and you add stuff to it. So like all those are the same, but you can have interesting stuff. Like you could define a class, which is a a lake, for example, Mm -hmm. and it's got a primary key, which is an ID, it's got a a name, which is a string, but then it could have a a geometry, which is a polygon, which is one of these things coming out of um, geoalchemy. Right. Yeah. Is, well, GIS. Yeah. In general. Yeah, yeah. 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 Exactly. So you just create like it's a, just a different column type out of that library. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Then you're off to the races. There's always a weird idea within GIS that like is spatial special data. Are, are we specialists or are we tech people? Like there's always kind of a weird nebulous feeling there. And what it does in some ways is it makes spatial data not special. It makes it really easy to deal with. It's logical and stored exactly like any other data in a column associated features are right there in that same row. And you can do relationships with it, like just like a ID based relationships, but you can also do spatial relationships. You can say, given this neighborhood, how many homes above this age or this price, let's say, exist in that neighborhood, you know, that kind of query. And, And you can just treat it like just any other data, but there's just this couple of special tweaks that allow it to be really flexible. And it's just more database queries, just like so session.query of like lake mm-hmm. filter. And then it's mm-hmm. like, excuse me, the geometry contains this point or it intersects this line. And presumably those are done with, I guess, some form of an index. So that's fast. Yes. There's, I don't really know, right? There's spatial indexing that improves it quite a bit. In fact, with the right engine underneath your database, these queries go fast for millions of points. Postgres is pretty, pretty amazing for being it's, a free it's database. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is super cool. You know, we were talking a little bit about it earlier, like Tinder, you know, all these modern apps are geospatial because they've just integrated, you know, where you are, where are the object that you're interested in, or like Uber, like, you know, nobody understood what I was saying when I said GIS. But when I finally was like, oh, it's like Uber, you know, you see where you are and you see the car coming to you, uh, which is... And you see the roads where it can go <laughs> yeah. and, and maybe even optimize a path if it's like a shared Uber, whatever that's yeah. called. All of those are geospatial. Sure they don't share anymore, but they used to. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, they used to work together when they had to. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, it's built into our modern lives in ways like you were talking about mapping, you know, but it's mapping plus information overlay and sorting through that information to find the things that are interesting to you across a varied and unique space that you may not be familiar with. A new city. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when you were first talking about studying getting your master's degree mm-hmm. in geography, I was th- just thinking back of when I was in middle school or something is like, well, Mm -hmm. what you're going to have to do is name all the states uh, in the U.S. You have to name all the countries in Europe. Like, okay, well, not super interesting, Mm -hmm. but I guess I'll I'll, like, I'll commit that to memory (laughs) and we'll just, we're going to do this, right? And then probably forget most of them. And, you know, that's kind of was my like young mind's impression of that. Yeah. But, you know, if you think of like space overlaid with 
flowing data and all the questions and answers that you you have, all of a sudden it becomes this really interesting yeah. programming problem and really important for people's lives. Well, t- let me have a quick diversion here. So um, back in the 30s, especially, there was a lot of geographers hired to like make flood maps or other kind of maps. They were trying to figure out like where are disparities across space and how can we help people? And it was a top level science. Geography had departments all across like Harvard, Yale, all of those schools. But then the, uh, to be honest, there was like a, a supposed like homosexual scandal at one of these schools where like, you know, a geography professor was living with one of his grad students and president who had skepticism around the science itself kind of decided just to cut it out. And because like he gave a different reason for it, but that was the, the rumor behind it all. Oh, my gosh. Uh, okay. Yeah. So it was Harvard or Yale. They cut it out and then all the other top IVs followed. But in most other countries, geography is a top level study because you're really understanding like, why are these people suffering from pollution more than these people next to them? What are the prevailing winds? What are the reasons that they live there? What are the historical, you know, why, why were black communities affected by freeways in the seventies more than other communities? You know, do, it was partially their political power partially where they were living because the elevation was flatter and it was more prone to floods. There's just all these geographic questions that are kind of amazing to study and you can get hyper-specific with it, but didn't appeal apparently to these top-level schools until around 2005 when Harvard started its spatial library and that was like a GIS-focused library and they brought back geography, or at least some component of it that was tangible to them. Oh, wow. Yeah, I had no idea about that history. (laughs) Nobody does. It is sort of a a unique component to this like science that's everywhere and nowhere. No no, no pun intended, really. Yeah, absolutely. So we talked about geoalchemy. There's a geoalchemy there. It's called geoalchemy two. What happened to one or no suffix? Do you know? Go straight to two. Yeah, whoever started (laughs) One abandoned it and somebody else took it over. Yeah. Yeah, yeah but they didn't want to edge it out or say, like, all right, we'll call it two. Yeah. If we're in Django, we have yeah. Geo Django. Uh-huh. That sounds better. Geo Django yeah. sounds fun, but maybe it's got to live within the Django models and stuff like that. I, yeah. I don't know when, obviously, if you're using Django, you probably would consider that. It's actually right built in. You just have to import one more thing in your admin.py. I believe that's what it's called, or um, mm-hmm. I haven't used GeoDjango in a few years, but uh, <laughs> it's like, you know, right from the get-go, when Adrian and his buddy were designing Django, they were doing the Every Block project that they ended up selling to CBS, which was like, it, kind of like a, a citizen app in 2007, where they were saying like, here's what's happening on every block in America. And so geography was built in early into Django. Oh, interesting. I had no idea about that history. Yeah. I mean, Django comes out of newsrooms, right? It came yeah. from the Lawrence yeah, yeah, yeah. world or something like that. So it makes total sense that it would have that, some of those ideas totally. in there. Yeah. As soon as he left, Adrian, what, I forget his last name right now. Anyway, he started every block and I think he did well selling that. It was like a huge part, as you said, and it's very much related to reporting. So I was like, yeah, I'm more into Flask these days, which it's just kind of simple and you can just add what you need when you need it. No disrespect to Django. Django's fantastic. Yeah. So if you're in Flask, GeoAlchemy too, obviously, mm-hmm. right? Yep. But if you're in Django, probably you just use the features that are built straight into it, right? Tons of tutorials about it all around. Yeah. Uh-huh. It was well supported. Yeah. So you have... Some that are on ArcGIS, which is yeah. the Esri commercial package, which they actually do a ton with Python as well over Esri, which, so if you're doing Python, you might, it might still be a great place to be, but it's also, you know, something you pay for. So you might alternatively consider some of the, like, piecing together things from some of the open source tools, right? But yeah, so tell us about your books. Sure. Yeah. I got the opportunity 
having volunteered to review some books in like 2012, an open early open source Python GIS book. That was great. And I was on Pack Publishers list and they kept emailing me like, can you write a book about network security in Python? And I was just think, no, I can't. I don't know anything about that. How at about all. cutting edge cryptography? Have yeah, you done that? Yeah, exactly. So no. Sounds like you've got the same emails, huh? Yep. <laughs> so I finally wrote back to them. I was like, look, I am a GIS professional and I can write about that. If you have any interest, let me know. Otherwise, stop emailing me. <laughs> and they said, yeah, actually we do. So they uh, they recruited me to write a book on ArcPy, which was at that point about five years old, but it was just getting more and more prominence. And I was obviously an early proponent. And I wrote that first book, ArcGIS, or ArcPy and ArcGIS, uh, Geospatial Analysis for Python, which we did a second version of me and uh, my coworker, Dara. And that one focused more on the newer ArcGIS Pro, which uses uh, the Python library for that is Python 3. The problem with ArcPy is it's Python 2 based. So it's, um, you know, it'll be supported for a while in terms of Esri, but like the greater Python world is rapidly leaving it behind. There, are, Yeah, there are some interesting industries that kind of get stuck. Like they so embrace Python, but they embrace it in a way where they like package it into their tooling. And they just, I'm thinking of like the movie and entertainment workflow industry. There's like all these tools like Maya and whatnot that have Python built in. And a lot of them embedded the Python 2 runtime and they're just until they as a group decide to change they're like that's how it is you know yeah exactly you know esri keeps trying to retire its ArcMap product in favor of this new arcgis pro but it's not going to happen because they have a huge sort of lazy let's say no offense workforce that does, doesn't want to learn a whole new software and i totally get it so they um yeah well, maybe they have stuff that works and they don't consider like building those yeah. things or maintaining their job they just need that to work for their job, right? And that's like, yeah. a, it's, it's good for them, but it's a tough place to be. They wrote this software called Avenue, which was their original programming language or one of them in the early aughts. And people are still using some of those scripts, I'm sure, in, in places. So, you know, things stick if they work, just like you said, and, and it makes sense. Yeah, so you took another take on this. Yeah, and it was fun. Uh, I, I actually recruited some help because writing books is a lot on Twitter and, and found couple guys uh, that I follow on Twitter. And we wrote this book, Mastering Geospatial Analysis with Python 3, which is like a 16 chapter review of available modules. Does a pretty good job of going from like very specific geospatial stuff all the way up to big data. And there's a couple chapters in there on interactive web mapping that I wrote around Flask and GeoAlchemy as well as GeoDjango. I thought it was great. Uh, we even touched on, do you know what uh, MapD, they became OmniSci. It's sort of a, no, um, I don't know. it's like That's a um, GPU database tool that does some pretty amazing oh, wow. vis visualizations. Okay. And they have a, a Python module, uh, PyMapD, they may have changed the name. Yes, things like that, like all these incredibly cool modules that just kind of blew me away. We just touched on them really, because there's so much to touch on. But I think it's a great book. I really liked writing it and it's so wide. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it really does a good coverage of all these things if you're into Python plus geospatial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yeah. It's, it's not like it's selling like hotcakes or anything. <laughs> you know, these are... These well, not of, before your parents on the podcast. Yeah, there on. you go. Yeah, yeah. I'll be looking for those uh, checks rolling in, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I would say it's only 30% like the App Store. Don't worry, it'll be fine. No, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> but speaking of podcasts, you spent close to a year doing a podcast on GIS topics, right? I did. And that was a joy. I mean, it's fun being back here and remembering how much fun this is. My co-host, uh, Todd Barr, who is the spatial punk 
he's sort of uh, Esri's aside and the thorn of Esri is sort of his like thing. <laughs> and, you know, he's just criticizing like the lack of support for big data and just really innovative or any kind of innovation the way he sees it. I think like there's some great tools coming out of Esri, like ArcPy and Arc Server is very cool. But he felt like within the realm, they had too much dominance and, and not enough like push towards really cool, new and fast pipeline supports, especially for big data. So sure. we had a lot okay. of discussions with all kinds of different users, though, around like different focuses, cartography to big data to archaeology. We had a, a journalist up in my hometown who does like a it's a Django based uh, website that gets like three million hits a month. Uh, and they use a lot of Geo Django to, to like locate where all the different say arrests or accidents happen. They just pull in records from uh, the courthouse and automatically add location to it. So it's one of those things like you okay. were saying about just yeah. adding in just a little bit of geo that makes your field, whatever it is, way better. Yeah. I recently did an episode on Python and AI ML in journalism. And there was a lot of geospatial stuff there as well about like automatically understanding, you know, like earthquakes in real time or crime in real time and those types of things as well. So yeah, I think it, it spans a lot. Have you heard of a Hoodline down here? Hoodline, no. They've gone national. In fact, I think they were purchased by Nextdoor, but it is a journalist, like a local neighborhood journalism site focused on all kinds of different cities, but it started here actually in the neighborhood I live in San Francisco in the Lower Haight. And uh, it was all about trying to automate a lot of the like exposition within a story. If like a restaurant opened or something, they could tell you about all the other restaurants that opened within a certain radius, that kind of thing. So machine learning and ghostwriting a lot of their stories was a big focus. I thought it was amazing. Oh, yeah. How interesting. That makes perfect sense for next door, of course. They're trying to like hyper local stuff. Maybe just give us a quick couple of your, your favorite episodes for your podcast. People will link to the yeah. show and people can check it out if they're interested. The cartography one with Sarah Bell was really fun because we talked to her about just kind of, you know, cartography and her GIS career, but also like what it's like being a woman in the field and, uh, and how she's loved it and hated it at times. That one really resonated. I thought the journalism one was fascinating because, you know, we're talking about all kinds of different crazy uh, stories that they've covered. For instance, they did a, you know, where I'm from, Humboldt County, there's a lot of marijuana up there. And so they did like a comparison with satellite imagery saying like, do you think this satellite has marijuana grown in it? And it pissed off all the locals, but it made for an amazing like application through their their website. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's kind of a crazy mix of GIS and uh, crime and reporting, which is just such a fascinating way to approach the world because that's really how things work. You know, things are located somewhere. Yeah. And a lot of those things are affected by the location that you're in, right? Quality of schools, the attitude or predispositions the police might have and perceiving the people in that neighborhood may vary a lot, right? Things like that. Oh, yeah. You, know, you can tell these stories with, with data, right? Yeah. Well, I was, uh, so the CEO of Hoodline, when she brought me on as a consultant, I was encouraging her, like, you have to know every gang territory in LA, you know, like, <laughs> that's the kind of thing that would really make for an amazing story, especially for automating it. So we never went that far with it. But I think there's still room to do that. Yeah, I, I guess there probably would, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the Mappiest Hour was really fun. And Todd uh, was a great co-host. We're still talking about doing some more maybe next year, but it was a very big year for us both. Yeah, so you had you had season one, mm -hmm. and then maybe you could do season two. There you go. Yeah. Uh, well, with this kind of encouragement, I'm loving this. So yeah, maybe I'll just uh, ride this wave. Call <laughs> yeah, them right up. On, huh? <laughs>
It's always fun. Yeah, you know, I you're just like sort of a bit of a sidebar with fellow podcaster. Like it's really interesting that the people that you get to meet, right? If there's so many folks that I've spoken to that generally, at least before I got into the podcast, you know, five years ago, would have not really bothered to give me the time of day, or at least they wouldn't have been excited about it, right? And now I, almost everyone I reach out to is excited to be part of the show, to share their story, to talk. And you just get to meet so many interesting people. It's just such an honor to sort of be part of that, right? It's cool. Oh my God, it, it really is. I'm loving this. Uh, and you must have just so much fun. You're doing this full-time now or like... Full-time, yeah, and, uh, two shows yeah, a week. Yeah, yeah it's great. Uh, oh, that's great. It's, it's just such a cool dive into who we as developers are, which is much more, much less monolithic than it sounds like initially. And there's just so many different ways and things you can do with code. Yeah, and you touched so, so much on it when you talked about that person who, not necessarily a CS grad, but some other expertise, but now has the magic programming power that most mm-hmm. people don't. And there's just so many interesting stories and use cases and libraries and applications coming out of that side of the mm-hmm. world that it's it's bottomless. It's cool. Just got to grasp what a for loop is and you're well on your way. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Pip install and you're going to be good. <laughs> All right. Let's see. One more thing that uh, we threw out to talk about was WebGIS for uh, yeah. Flask or Django APIs. Tell us maybe about that real quick. Well, you can just do some amazing APIs with Flask or Django in general. But with Geo, especially with if you're building like a phone, an iPhone app or an Android app, you know, you can just send your location and have all kinds of context sent back to the application based on these uh, APIs. So they're quick to put up. They're easy to maintain, and you can integrate spatial right into it. It really isn't that much work. There's a little bit deeper understanding of like the type of spatial function you may need for a specific moment, but none of that is going to take a master's degree. In fact, I think just yeah. like reading some online tutorials or some stack, there's a, a geo stack overflow even, I think. Oh, that, cool. Yeah. The gis.stackoverflow, something like that is very, very useful. A stack exchange. Yeah. Probably. There you go. That's it. Yeah. Yep. Or you could buy my books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Now, I, I, the, the amount of data that you have to exchange is actually pretty small for these these applications, like where am I or, or what path have I taken Yeah, and so on. But mm-hmm. it's, it's easy to build APIs random. I would suspect like on the back end, have it something like GeoSQL, GeoAlchemy mm-hmm. 2, just indexes. Make sure you have indexes. Uh, the coolest thing I ended up doing at Zillow was building what I what we called the Surveyor. It was just a working title, but it was a just literally a web map built in Flask PostGIS to be able to actually see a lot of the data that we were building and creating and comparing. Because internally, we didn't have like a mapping tool that could really speak to all of the geospatial data that we had. It was such a surprise to me. And I ended up winning the Hack Week there earlier this year before I left. And that was just like so fun because I presented it at, at the end of Hack Week and they instantly were like, yes, why don't we have this already? <laughs> you know? That's awesome. Yeah. That's, that's super cool. Congratulations. Yeah. One more thing on the library side, I guess, yeah. is probably worth throwing out. So we've talked a lot about server side mm-hmm. things and you talked about your cool experiences with JavaScript in the mm-hmm. front end. If I'm going to do mapping data, especially Mm -hmm. interactive maps, there's got to be some fancy library that goes on the front end that makes this happen. So what would you recommend to check out? Sure. Yeah, there's less fancier ones. I would say that Leaflet is considered, which is a JavaScript library, is considered a medium level knowledge that you could use. And then MapGL, uh, MapboxGL, I'm sorry, is a little bit higher level, but it has really fine controls over what you can do. And... um, you can have all kinds of events. There are some pure Python front-end tools like Dash and a few others that do have mapping integrated as well as graphs. And, and that can be 
really useful. You don't have to handle much of the uh, HTML if you don't want to. But I find it, if you're going to get into interactive web mapping, really useful to know both Python and JavaScript to make them work together. Yeah, yeah a lot of the interactive stuff happens on, it has to happen on the client side, right? Yeah. So that means some kind of JavaScript. Yeah. <laughs> get used to curly braces, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't forget the semicolons. Actually, it, in JavaScript, you can forget them, which is kind of good, I guess. <laughs> it took me a long time to get into JavaScript because I was so used to the clean nature of Python. Like, And yeah. no joke, that attracted me to Python it was so important to be able to read the code. Yeah, and I feel like JavaScript used to be closer to that world. It used to be pretty simple. Now it's like, you know, all sorts of dependencies and yeah. require this. And then like, you know, you pack up these things and it's just like, oh my gosh, a variant or, you know, you pre-compile or transpile your TypeScript over to this and then you pack it up and you minify it. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. What happened to just including something in the page? <laughs> I mean, what I do demos or proof of concept it's always pretty vanilla with like one mapping library or something there's some other cool ones too that uber is putting out a ton of really cool stuff like deck.gl and there's another one i forget but if you want to get into super fancy data visualization i recommend looking into uber's set of javascript tools it's pretty amazing stuff but yeah i prefer a much more vanilla <laughs> implementation myself just for my brain to manage it and to understand it <laughs> Yeah, super cool. All right, let me close out our conversation with one uh, sort of more general question here. So people out there listening, a lot of them have Python skills, obviously, or building up their Python skills. And maybe they're interested in this, but they haven't done anything with geography, cartography, GIS. How much do you need to know to be useful and powerful? Like, do you need to go get a degree? Mm -hmm. How much work is it to get into this? If you want to really understand the theories behind geography, yeah, I, I think grad school can be really useful or just an undergrad degree because it really helps you understand like just why it's cold in the Arctic and warm at the equator, like just at that basic level. It is amazing. And the relationship between the two and the relationship between that and human culture. So if you want to really understand humans, yes, go into geography. But if you want to make a geospatial data pipeline, I think what you really have to know is just like, what is the data you're getting in? And what is the data you want to get out? And what are your resources in between? You don't have to know much more than that. There's all kinds of tutorials. There's books. There's there's a weekend of exploration ahead of you. It's not that hard, but it is really powerful. Awesome. Well, it, it does sound like a really fun area to get into. And a lot of times these visual aspects are pretty cool for people who are not sure that they're necessarily programmers. But then if you build something that you can see and touch and share, like all of a sudden it makes a big difference, I find. Completely agree. It's one of the coolest things you do. And I still get that thrill I got, you know, from showing my grandmother the little lat long that I was able to pull from a shapefile. <laughs> <laughs> Super cool. All right. Now, before I let you out of here, you got to answer the two questions I always put at the end of the show. If you're going to write some Python code, what editor do you use? Lately, it is uh, PyCharm. I really like it. Before that, it was sublime because it's just simple and you don't have to think too much about it. But PyCharm is fantastic. Yeah, it's my favorite as well. I love it. And uh, notable PyPI package. I mean, we definitely threw a bunch out there. Uh, I think PyShape is the like lowest level one because unfortunately still this uh, really ancient data format is the major data format in GIS. So PySHP, that tool will allow you to read and write it just in pure Python. Awesome. Cool. All right. So final call to action. People are interested in GIS. What do you say to them? And Python. It's an amazing field. How do I put those together? Yeah, this is the future. Or maybe the future is here. But either way, there's so much that can be done in this space. It's We're just touching on it. Like people are just 
hearing about it, let alone realizing that there's so much more to do with it. So yes, come join me. Yeah, it definitely feels like maybe the future is here. It feels like <laughs> part of the future. Like I remember so so many of these things, the GPS stuff, the Zillow stuff, all those different just literally blew my mind when I saw them. And I'm reminded of um, the William Gibson quote, like the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That is so true. The future is generally in your hands these days, but not everybody (laughs) has the same phone. That's true. That's true. All right. Well, Silas, thank you for being on the show. It was great to chat with you. It was so fun, Michael. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing this. See ya. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Our guest on this episode was Silas Toms, and it's been brought to you by us over at TalkPython Training and Linode. Simplify your infrastructure and cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux virtual machines. Develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier. Visit talkpython.fm slash Linode and click the Create Free Account button to get started. Want to level up your Python? If you're just getting started, try my Python Jumpstart by Building 10 Apps course. Or if you're looking for something more advanced, check out our new async course that digs into all the different types of async programming you can do in Python. And of course, if you're interested in more than one of these, be sure to check out our everything bundle. It's like a subscription that never expires. Be sure to subscribe to the show. Open your favorite podcatcher and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code.